What's up, witches? Hi, I'm Claudia. And I'm Jess. And welcome to True Crime Coven. Hiya, Jess. Hey, Claudia. You are right? Yeah, I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm good. I've really enjoyed the sunshine today. Yeah, it has been nice and sunny, but I spent the whole day indoors so oh, well i didn't <laughs> <laughs> lucky for some i went to a car boot sale i went to work and i bought some animal teeth <laughs> <laughs> that's normal <laughs> well they were just in this thing and i think this woman lives in, oh, i presume she just lives uh, she said she found them on her property i believe oh, her okay. thousands of oh to be fair <laughs> my uncle just has a habit of like digging things up in his garden like he he loves gardening yeah yeah, yeah. so he bought a house down in like winchester mm. and found like a whole human skeleton in the garden he did yeah. call the police right oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck's sake, and bin. here's one i murdered earlier no i'm joking i like bones yeah i like teeth but obviously oh, he being, has a collection being vegan i don't like taxidermy like i don't mind buying taxidermy if it if they can prove it's like low like mm. roadkill but obviously a lot of it isn't it's, yeah yeah i don't buy taxidermy because a lot of it isn't ethically sourced. Yeah. But if it's done tastefully, I have no qualms with it yeah. if it's ethically sourced. But I like bones and shit. So mm. I once bought my best friend who loves bones, like these little bone earrings, and they were rat bones from like, you know, an owl's like cough them back up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so eth- ethical. <laughs> and these ones are found ethical. So yeah, I will have some bones, please. <laughs> and uh, on the subject of bones. <laughs> yeah, we're getting let's straight talk into some it. murder. Lovely. So Jess, I'm about 99.9999 recurring, yeah. essential, that you're going to know the case today. Oh, okay. Because this was huge. Mm. And with us being the same age, like me, this may have been the first true crime abduction thing you became fully aware of. Okay, maybe. So today I'm going to tell you about the Soa murders. Oh, okay. Do you, does that ring a bell? L- yeah, a little bit. Like, I've heard of it in the news, but haven't really, like, When I say the name's Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Yeah. And I'm sure you know the name of the perpetrator slash perpetrators. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not going to say them. Okay. Because if people aren't familiar with this case... Yeah, it would be a nice little surprise. Yeah, a little <laughs> murder surprise. But yeah, this happened in 2002, so we were about eight or nine. Yeah. I was nine, you were eight. <laughs> um, and I know for me, that was sort of an age. I think about that age, you start becoming a bit more aware of your own mortality, which sounds really yeah, emo. Yeah. And okay, the emo did start young. But also, I think you start actually listening to the news. Yeah. Instead of it just being on in the background, you look at the news. especially You're if processing differently. Yeah, especially because they were quite similar ages to us, weren't they? They, they weren't, were 10. Yes, they weren't that much older than us. And you see someone your age in the news. And I feel like our parents would have, quite rightly so, then started drumming into us even more Mm -hmm. the usual stranger danger in that. Yeah. But I would like to say that today is going to be a two-parter. Ooh. First (laughs) two-parter. And I know a lot of people hate two-parters, and for that, I'm sorry. But I got Mm. to, like, the stage where we normally would, you know, the sort of normal amount of case written. (laughs) And I realised I had only just started to get into... The perpetrator mm. and all the goings on yeah and i thought you know what two-parter it needs to be done as two are we gonna do two consecutive weeks we are oh lovely and so yeah if you hate two-parters i'm i'm sorry tune in next week 
for the finale. Trigger warnings are that this is a case of child abduction mm. and murder. Yeah. And I've had people say to me in person, I can't listen to that. And I, oh my God, oh, I get it. understandable. Yeah. I am not even like a massive child person. And yet, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Like researching this has it's, been horrible. Yeah. So if you can't listen, completely understand. Don't tune in next week either. <laughs> no. <laughs> Come back the week after for some ghost stories. And just take care of yourself. So, August 4th, 2002 was a warm and sunny day in the school summer holidays and a 10-year-old Jessica Chapman left her house in Soham in East Cambridgeshire at 11.45am to walk to her best friend Holly Wells' house for a barbecue nearby. In her hand, she clutched a gift for Holly that she had bought on her family holiday to Menorca. It was a necklace engraved with the initial H. The two girls hung out playing video games and listening to music during which they were briefly joined by another friend for a little bit. Oh, okay. And then at around 3.15pm, this is just the two of them again, they both decided to change into matching red Manchester United football shirts. I remember that from the photos very vividly now that you said it. Yeah. The girls were huge fans of Man United and idolised David Beckham. And so on the back of their Manchester United shirts, they sported the number seven. One of the football shirts belonged to Holly whilst the other belonged to her older brother, Oliver. Holly's mum, Nicola, took a picture of them in their shirts, stood side by side, with Holly smiling at the camera, her blonde hair just past her shoulders, and Jessica, with her brown shoulder-length hair, sporting the addition of a braid, a telltale sign of that recent family holiday. When Nicola Wells took this picture, she had no way of knowing that this would become an infamous photo Mm. of her daughter and her best friend, as you mentioned. Yeah. And it did, it just became synonymous oh with this God. case. Yeah, yeah. At around 6.15pm, Holly and Jessica decided to take a walk to the local sports centre to grab some sweets from the vending machine there. And so they left without letting anyone know what they were up to. And in their defence, mm. it was less than a 15 minute round trip. I couldn't find the name of the sports centre they went to anywhere, okay. but, you know, the Google Maps bit. Mm. And I'm sort of worked out what I what sports center yeah. I believe it was and yeah about a 15 minute round trip okay less so, than yeah like what you're thinking like six minutes there six minutes back yeah. so like yeah a couple of minutes picking your sweets and yeah and then home again and if they're doing it without telling anyone they probably have done it loads of times before so didn't even think anything of it yeah and I can totally see how a 10 year old excited by sweets on a fun filled day with their best friend in the middle of summer yeah, when oh it's God, bright yeah. outside, yeah. wouldn't think to tell their mum they were popping out. Yeah. Because I used to just roam my nearby streets yeah. as a kid. We used to, like, so we had a shop at the end of our road mm. and we did have to walk down a lane to get there, but it wasn't like a dodgy lane. There was like, it was just a lane, a load of yeah. gardens backed onto. Mm. And it was like well lit and it was just like for like cars to drive down to get to the garages at the back of the house kind of thing. And one of our friends who live around the corner, they would often come around and be like, oh, do you want to go grab something from the shop? And you'd be like, yeah, all right. And just walk out the house. As a 10 year old, it's the last thing in your, on your mind. Oh yeah, definitely. You're a child without a care in the world. School's out. It's summer. And they're just gone. Yeah. And you're with your best friend. Yeah. At 8pm, Nicola Wells walked upstairs and knocked on the door of Holly's bedroom to ask the two girls to come down and say goodbye to the guests that were leaving. Remember, they'd been enjoying the sun with a barbecue. Mm. But she was shocked to discover the room empty, with no sign of the pair. She informed her husband, Kevin, and the two began searching the other rooms in the house 
as well as their street and the neighbouring ones, in case Holly and Jessica were out playing in the warmth of the summer evening. Unable to find any trace of them, and once Holly's 8.30pm curfew had come and gone, a worried Nicola phoned the Chapman family home mm. to see if the girls had, you know, wandered over there and yeah. lost track of time. Fair enough. However, their fears deepened when Leslie and Sharon Chapman said that they hadn't seen Jessica or Holly and had also begun worrying about where their youngest daughter was. Both sets of parents sprang into action, trying to find the 10-year-olds, using the long summer evening light to their advantage and looking for the girls everywhere they could think that they might be. Mm. But it began to get dark, and with no sight nor sound of the best friends, a call was made to police at 9.55pm to report their children as missing. Wow. Every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah, that's kind of like happened quickly, obviously, because they mm. obviously went out, what, like six-ish, did you say? 6.15. 6.15, and then their parents are ringing the police by nine, ten o'clock. Ten o'clock, yeah, five um, to ten. Yeah, which obviously you're like, well, why didn't they ring them as soon as you... But then if they know that they would wander, you are going to search everywhere and first. You... you don't want to alert the police for... N- nothing yeah and it's not like they're they're they're, 10 is very young don't get me wrong yeah but it seems like the two girls had quite a lot of freedom in terms of they probably lived in a safe area yeah i think it was quite like a little town safe area they knew the streets surrounding yeah clearly knew their neighbors summer's evening yeah they clearly often went outside to play like that you're gonna be thinking that hopefully they're just like in a nearby alleyway yeah or in a woods, like somewhere like a familiar park. that you'd know that they would be. Yeah, you're gonna think that. Go there first. Check there first. Exactly. They probably even check but the leisure that, center. But when that light starts running out, that's when you panic. That's when it changes. Especially when you know that they would normally be home by then. I used to play out loads as a kid, and I mm. remember once we went to a different. There was a lane that was a bit dodgy near me. Like definitely drug deals happened down it. Oh, okay. But as a kid, you're obviously not really. Yeah, clued in you, on that stuff yeah. you're like two men meeting and exchanging money normal <laughs> um, and we once decided there was like a purpose-built football pitch for yeah. like a five-a-side thing okay yeah built there and we once decided to go there and there was like a group of like 10 of us the mm. parents were like okay like there's 10 of you yeah you can go and yeah. i think i was probably about 11 and like some of the kids were like 14 oh okay so you're that bit like older. ranging ages yeah, yeah, from like yeah. age to eight to age 14 mm. so they were like yeah, yeah yeah and then i remember it got dark and all the parents suddenly marched up this lane like come on <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's one of those things like whilst it's light and sunny it's fine as soon but the as second it it's dark, dark yeah it's... i think every not only is it scary the dark but i think i imagine as a parent yeah it's like, like why aren't they back yet cambridgeshire police immediately took this report seriously springing into action. Both the Chapmans and Wells were adamant that their daughters were wary of speaking to strangers and that they had impressed upon them the importance of stranger danger and not trusting people that they didn't know. The head teacher of St Andrews Primary School, where both girls attended, backed the parents up in their statements, informing reporters that the school had too taught their students that strangers are potentially dangerous to talk to. Nevertheless, police officers strongly suspected that the pair had been abducted. In the coming days, over 400 police officers were assigned full-time to search for the girls, and hundreds of volunteers showed up to search local woodlands and fields. Officers conducted extensive house-to-house inquiries across Soham, 
and questioned every registered sex offender in Cambridgeshire and the neighbouring county of Lincolnshire, all 260 of them, oh, wow. including 15 high-risk paedophiles. Oh, my God. Yeah, That's and, a lot. <laughs> so I looked up the population of Cambridgeshire and it was... Oh, it's gone from my head now because I didn't include it. Yeah. It was in the hundreds of thousands. Okay. So I suppose it's not... Those two figures next to each other don't look like much, but yeah. I was still a bit like, Whew. that's still a lot. I, I'd be intrigued to see how many there are in Bristol because obviously Bristol is quite densely populated. And it's a bit rough. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to upset people saying that, but it is. But I know it is, but I bet there would be more than you would realize. Especially now. But we'll go more into that on the next episode why there would be more now. Okay. However, mm-hmm. all were eliminated. Wow. The police also wondered if perhaps the two had met someone in an online chat room and had arranged to meet them. This is before the days of Facebook and Instagram, mm. and in fact, this was even before MySpace. Wow. This is a year before. This is when the internet, as we know it today, just didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> so there were forums and sites where strangers could sit and chat. And because this was all so new, the safety of it was non-existent. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, today we have different safety challenges with the internet, but it was just less governed. Parents knew less. Kids yeah. knew less. In the end, the police were also able to rule out the possibilities of the girls leaving to meet someone online. Soon that photo taken by Nicola Wells of the girls in their bright red Man U football shirts was on the front page of every British newspaper. The public were told to come forward with any and all information or sightings of the blonde, light-skinned Holly Wells and or her tanned brunette best friend, Jessica Chapman. And several members of the public did come forward. One man, named Mark Tuck, informed the police that he had driven past Holly and Jessica in Soham Town Centre at around 6.30pm on August 4th. He remembered this clearly as he had remarked to his wife, look, there's two little Beckhams over there, <laughs> when he noticed their red football shirts and the large number sevens on the back. Oh. Good job they were wearing something distinctive. I think that helped. Yeah. Another individual called Karen Greenwood reported that she had seen the best friends walking arm in arm along College Road just after 6.30pm. And again, looking on Google Maps, this is, yeah, all really close to the house. Oh, okay. So they they were literally, as the story checks out, walking to the leisure centre, walking home. They're never more than a few roads away from where Holly Wells lived. Yeah. And that wasn't more than a few roads away from where Jessica Chapman lived. And a third person also told police that he had spoken to the girls immediately before they had vanished. A man named Ian Huntley Mm. said how he had seen Holly and Jessica, who appeared happy. The two girls sort of knew Huntley, as his fiancée, Maxine Carr, worked at their school as a teaching assistant. And so he stated that when they had seen him grooming his dog outside his home, they had stopped and asked about his partner, Miss Carr and if she had gotten the permanent teaching job at their school. When Huntley informed the pair that she had unfortunately been unsuccessful and hadn't gotten the job, they told him to tell her that they were sorry. Huntley then said that Holly and Jessica carried on walking in the direction of a bridge towards Clay Street. He also told police, I keep reliving that conversation and thinking perhaps something different could have been said. Perhaps I could have kept them here a little bit longer and maybe changed events. Due to these reports, the police knew in what vicinity to begin checking CCTV videos in. And so, on August 8th, 2002, 
Footage was released to the public of Holly and Jessica arriving at the sports centre at 6.28pm. A televised reconstruction of the girls' last known movements, as in the route they would have taken to the sports centre that day, was broadcast nationwide on August 10th. And I don't know if this is a false memory, but I think I vaguely remember seeing this. Probably. I think it might have been quite late, but I didn't. I had a late bedtime because I was a nightmare child. <laughs> and I think I remember it. Other sightings were also told to police, such as a woman in a nearby village stating that she saw two little girls who matched their description walking past her house on August 5th, the morning after their disappearance. But this would turn out to have not been Holly and Jessica. Okay. Several statements were issued to police regarding a suspicious white van that had been spotted by locals in Soham on the evening of August 4th. This led to police seizing the vehicle from a caravan park days later. However, no trace of either girl was found. On August 12th, both Nicola and Kevin Wells and Leslie and Sharon Chapman agreed to an interview on the ITV programme tonight. Other members of the girls' families and their friends also appealed for the safe return of Holly and Jessica. These media appearances struck a chord with viewers. I mean, how could yeah, they not? I bet. And over 2,000 phone calls and tips came flooding in from the public. Oh, wow. Staffordshire police also got in contact with the officers leading the investigation to inform them of their suspicions that Holly and Jessica could have been abducted by the same perpetrator that had kidnapped and assaulted a six-year-old girl oh my God. in 2001 in their jurisdiction, as well as followed a 12-year-old girl in the same area. The person responsible was still at large, but the details of their green Ford Mondeo with stolen licence plates was passed on, and this car had recently been sighted in Cambridgeshire. Oh, okay. However, this too turned out to have no links to the case. And just a side note, the six-year-old girl did survive her attack and abduction. Oh, Obviously, wow. the effect would have oh, still been catastrophic, yeah. but she, she lived to tell the tale. Sadly, despite all this information and the efforts of police and volunteers including some United Air Force personnel stationed nearby who tried to help, mm. the bodies of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman were discovered on August 17th at 12.30pm, 13 days after they had vanished and just a day after their matching football shirts had been found cut in half and burned at a hangar on the grounds of Soham Village College. Oh, wow. 48-year-old gamekeeper Keith Pryor was attending to a pheasant pen near the fence of a Royal Air Force station in Lakenheath, Suffolk, 10 miles east of Soham, when he discovered the girls laying in a five-foot-deep irrigation ditch. Pryor had noticed a foul smell in the area that he couldn't quite place mm. several days earlier, and when he returned on August 17th, along with two friends, and could still smell the unpleasant odour, he decided to find out what was causing it. Fair enough. Although... Nothing could have prepared him for just what that cause would be. Mm. His friend, Adrian Lawrence, who was also with him at the time, immediately called police upon their discovery. The bodies were, as you can imagine, yeah. in an advanced state of decomposition. On top of that, it was clear that whoever had killed the girls had also attempted to burn their bodies, likely to try to destroy evidence. Mm. Despite the state that the bodies were in, it didn't take long for investigators to identify them as 10-year-old Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman and to deduce that the two had not died or been killed at the location at which they were found. On August 18th, Cambridgeshire Deputy Chief Constable Keith Hodder 
released a press statement to the media where he confirmed the discovery of the bodies of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, and that although formal identification would take several days, the police were as certain as they could possibly be. And I mean, yeah, like, unless you've got lots of missing children. Yeah, you're going to know. And I think just because there was like two of them Mm. together. Two female children bodies together. Yeah, same age. Sorry to say this, but even if they're that decomposed because it was summer. Yeah. You can tell when skeletal remains Mm. are female and childlike because of size and because of the shape of like the pelvis. pelvis. Yeah. The feeling of loss was felt across the country. On August 21st, DNA testing would confirm what everyone knew, that Holly and Jessica were dead. Mm. On August 30th, a public memorial service was held to remember the girls with a turnout of around 2,000 people, which included their friends and families, as well as their teachers and six family liaison officers who provided 24-hour support for the two families. But what had happened to Holly and Jessica? Mm. What had occurred after they'd visited the sports centre and gotten their sweets? And how had they ended up dead 10 miles away from their homes? Well, what if I tell you that it was all because of someone we have already mentioned? Yep, I think I already know who it is. (laughs) You see, someone had been inserting themselves into the police's investigations and their persistence and questions had begun to raise alarm bells to officers involved. And that individual was Ian Huntley. Mm-hmm. As soon as you said his name, I was like, yes, I do recognise it. I do recognise it. Huntley had volunteered in the search for the best friends, helping to look for any clues or evidence of where they might have been or what had happened to them. Now, this in itself isn't a cause for concern. No. In fact, pretty normal. Yeah. Member like of the he, community. He, yeah, he out. knew the girls as well. They were students of his sit, partner, fiance. Fiance, fiance. Yeah. yeah, so he would have known who they were. Like, that's quite a normal response to take an active interest in trying to find and these just, children. Even if you don't, someone in the community. Yeah. I, I mean, no if one, I had yeah. lived nearby and I wasn't an eight-year-old child, I would have helped as well, like, if this yeah. happened now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, if that happened around where I live and they were like, we just need bodies to help search, I'd be like, of course, there's two yeah. missing children. Who um, wouldn't? Yeah. It'd be more suspicious not to. Yeah. However, police started to get suspicious when Huntley began regularly asking how their investigation was going and what progress was being made. Even asking the, in retrospect... Alarming question of how long DNA evidence could survive before deteriorating. One officer said that they noticed three vertical scratches on Huntley's jaw. However, when they asked him how he came to get them, Huntley explained them away as inflicted by his dog. In the days following Holly and Jessica's disappearance, Huntley had agreed to several TV interviews, where he spoke of the shock felt within the community and about his troubled feelings of being the last person to see the girls. By the second week of their vanishing, Huntley had almost become an unofficial spokesperson for the community of Soham, stating that he wanted to show the media the frustration and sadness that everyone was feeling. His fiancée, Maxine Carr, remember, she worked at the girls' school, also spoke in a TV interview, where she told of the two best friends' differing personalities, commenting that Holly was the more feminine one and that Jessica was a tomboy who rarely wore skirts. 
Carr also showed to the camera a thank you card that Holly had given her on the last day of school before the summer holidays had started. Now, this may all seem like a normal interview given by a teacher of the girls. However, Carr made one tiny mistake. Before she looked at the camera and made a plea for the pair to get on the phone and come home, she referred to a 10-year-old Holly Wells in the past tense by stating, she was just lovely. Uh, And at that point, they obviously didn't know they were Mm. still missing. Yeah, exactly. Mm, Okay. By the second week, Huntley's appearance had also begun changing. The 28-year-old had started to lose weight and appeared tired, exhausted even. On August 13th, he was prescribed antidepressants and even said to a police officer, You think I've done it? I was the last person to see them, before breaking down in tears. Hmm. At this point, Huntley was yet to have even been questioned by police. Now, at this point, he had been interviewed, and they'd gone round his house to take a statement. But they'd done that with everyone. They hadn't done that because they suspected He came forward as the last person to see them alive. Of course they would go round his house and take a statement. Oh, God, yeah. But he hadn't been brought in for questioning, per se. No. So why did he assume they thought he'd done it? Yeah. Guilty conscience finally coming out. To investigators, it was clear that Ian Huntley was beginning to crack. Mm. And that's where we will leave it this week. Okay. Come back next week to find out what happened inside Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr's home. His efforts to cover up his horrific crimes and how it all unraveled for him. Mm. And also how the lovely bastard is getting on today. Oh, I'm excited for that last bit. Mm. He's not had fun. Thank God. Oh, <laughs> good. Yeah, I am curious to because mm. I thought that as soon as you said that the police had gone to question him, that it was all well and be like, oh, I think I might have been the last person to see them alive. They were walking down that direction. Like, great, that's helpful. But then to turn around and be like, oh, I wish I'd spoken to them longer. Maybe events would have turned out differently. It's I, just that's also a bit of a weird. It's the thing where you always, ins- like, a lot of people will insert themselves into an investigation. And the weird thing about this, and as we'll go into more detail next week, the weird yeah. thing about it is he could have never come forward to say that he had seen them. And that would have been less suspicious in itself. Oh, God, yeah. Because, definitely. Again, looking on Google Maps, they didn't really need to go past his house to get home. Now, oh, it looks like they, they could have done. Yeah. And like we all know as a kid, it's like, go the fun way. And yeah, it takes yeah. longer. As an adult, you're like, go the fucking fast way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> go the long way home. We can walk past this thing. Yeah. Exactly. So there was no indication necessarily that they would have even seen him. And even if they had walked past his house, they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily question everyone whose house they would have walked past. No, even if they knew them. By even coming forward in the first place, that was the first instance of him inserting himself into the investigation. Yeah. And they find that a lot of the time the killers do this. Oh, yeah. Because they can't help themselves, either because they've got a fascination with what they've done, like in the case of serial killers. Oh, yeah. Or because they're trying to work out if they've been caught. Yeah. I believe that this was a way for him to insert himself so that he could then carry on asking questions. Yeah, and just see how close like, to him they getting were caught? getting. Yeah, Because I don't think he wanted to get caught at all. No. And again, we'll talk more about the lengths he went to to try and hide it. Because he did, oh, God, he went yeah. to some lengths. I was going to say, you said that it was clear that someone had tried to burn the bodies. Mm. I mean, yeah. 
you would burn something to get rid of the evidence. You don't want to get caught. You don't want them to be found. No. And 10 miles away from where they were taken, Mm. like, that's quite far. It is. Unfortunately for him, he wasn't clever. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? He doesn't sound it. (laughs) And we'll get more into it next week. But Mm. when I say that this whole topic brings out a lot more emotion in me than I, not than I thought it would, but I think I've listened to true crime for so long that a lot of it doesn't get to me. I'm quite removed from it. And maybe I'm a heartless bastard, but also the job I do, I have to compartmentalize yeah. Yeah. things. And I feel like you see things from both sides a bit easier. Like, Yeah, and I think a lot of the cases we've covered, mental illness has come into play. Yeah. And we can discuss this about Ian Huntley as well. Mm. But mental illness has been a bigger part in it in yeah. terms of like Graham Fisher... Was not he was, okay. He was not well, yeah. Um, um, Nicola, Nicola Edgington. She was not well. No, yeah. that was a failing of the system, I think, yeah. more than her fault, yeah. personally. Oh, yeah, but still, she wasn't well, and she didn't get the help she needed. Exactly. And whereas, I think with this, it was just, when we look at his past, it's going to annoy me in the same way Mark Dixie with Sally Ann Bowman. Oh, okay. And yeah. uh, just that infuriating... He shouldn't have come this far, but did. And yes, just, yeah. and we will talk about now why things are more protected. Oh yeah, definitely. I just think it's so important things. whenever mm. we look at legislation to remember that a lot of the time these things are in place that now protect people because unfortunately someone wasn't protected. Yeah. But yeah, that's where we'll leave it this week. And next week we will discuss Ian Huntley yeah, and we Maxine will Carr. The other side of the story. So thank you, Jess. Uh, no, thank you for bringing the story. That's all right. Yeah, I'm sorry it's a two-parter, guys, but I just, I know it's not the longest episode that we're putting out today, so I know people are going to be like, you could have done it in one. I hope I've left you suitably interested. Left you hanging on a nice little cliffhanger for you. Don't go and research it in between. Don't be those people. I mean, you can, but like, you'd just be Same. ruining it for yourself. And you know what? I'm doing the work for you. <laughs> I'm I'm staying up at night already so just you know yeah get Claudia too let me work. do the do <laughs> <laughs> alright guys thanks for listening we'll hopefully see you next week remember stay spooky hey guys if you have a ghost story or a case suggestion please email us truecrimecovinpod at gmail.com you can also find us on Twitter at True Crime Coven or on Instagram and Facebook where we are at True Crime Coven Pot. Also, it would mean the absolute world to us if you could rate us wherever you're listening to this right now, be it Spotify, Apple Music, or if you're on YouTube, give us a little thumbs up, click that bell, get notifications yeah. every time we post. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. Make these two witches smile. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, witches. witches.